Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Wednesday, the 19th of September, and our guest is Charles Fidel on the topic of what should students learn in the 21st century. Welcome, Charles. Thank you, Steve. Hello, everyone. Fun to be here. Fun to be here a little bit earlier than usual. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Thanks to Mighty Bell and Blackboard Collaborate for support. And if you're following my tour, I'm currently in Portland getting ready to go to Seattle for the Hack Your Education tour. That's at hackyoureducation.com. Lots of fun, free local events. Feel free to check it out and come join us. The Learning 2.0 conference recordings are all up, learning20.com. Lots of fun. I'm getting a notice that there's a broken link on my site. Did anybody experience that? Trying to come into the session. I hope that's not the case. Uh, coming up, the Library 2.012 Conference, Future of Libraries. That's October 3rd through 5th. And it is free and virtual. And it's just a great response. Getting so many sessions set up. Um, if you're interested in libraries, prepare for little sleep over the course of two days. And then in November, our Global Education Conference, five days, 24 hours a day, just a ton of fun. Tomorrow, we hear from Bob Glinner on his new film, Schools That Change Communities. Really should be fun. Bob's been on the show before. Then a student, Nikhil Goyal, tells us about his book, One Size Does Not Fit All, on Monday. Ron Rich Hart on Making Thinking Visible. Then on next Wednesday, this show I've been looking forward to quite a bit, The True History of the MOOC with this terrific gang of folks. Thomas Vanderark on Thursday, on next Thursday, on his book, Getting Smart. You can see lots more fun ahead. Hopefully, you'll join us for something. If you've missed any of the shows, they are all recorded in full Blackboard Collaborate version and in MP3 format. Uh, last night, we talked to Jamie Palmer about his book, Schools Cannot Do It Alone. That was really, really fun. Uh, if you've missed it, please feel free to watch that recording. I think you'll enjoy it. Anyway, lots lots up there at futureofeducation.com. So this is your chance to let us know where you're participating from. Click on the, the star icon to the left of the map, and then click on the map again. And while you're doing that, I'm going to make sure that the link gets tweeted out to those who are saying they're having trouble. Australia, delightful. Didn't know that we would get you're up early in Australia if you're listening in at this time. Feel free to put a note in the chat and let us know just how early it is. So thanks to Mighty Bell for support. And as part of that, I've created a Mighty Bell room for this session. Uh, what that does is it allows you to um, aggregate different uh, websites and resources. And um, for this show, if you want to continue the conversation on what should students learn in the 21st century, you can do so by going to the link that I'm going to post in the chat here. And that's the Mighty Bell space. It's worth checking it out. Terrific project by Gina Bianchini, uh, for whom I also consulted on Ning. So Charles, this is really your show, so I'm going to turn it over to you. I'll keep watch on the chat. Really delighted to have you here. A lot of fun to hear what you're going to have to say. And then call me in at any time, but otherwise I'll be just kind of managing things on the back end. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Steve. So let me make sure first that I can move things. Yep, I can. All right. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, it's, a, it's a delight to be with all of you. And this is, I think, uh, Steve, my fourth time on Future of Education. So um, at six, do I get a special, uh, a special recognition? <laughs> <laughs> sure. I'll, I'll give you a... <laughs> well, you certainly, uh, 
at, at the minimum, you have my eternal gratitude. So how about that? So it's it's really a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. You have a fantastic community, and um, this is a this is a question that I'm working on quite heavily. And you'll understand why as we go through this presentation. Uh, there are a lot of people around the world that are working on how to improve education, but from the standpoint of pedagogy and practice, which is absolutely necessary and laudable. But somehow we had um, neglected, if not abdicated, uh, responsibility for standards to well-meaning bodies that don't necessarily have the full view of what's happening in the real world and the necessity for change. So this is what I'm going to be exploring with you. Uh, first of all, the realities of the present world and the world ahead, more and more volatile and uncertain and complex and ambiguous, uh, this VUCA uh, acronym that uh, uh, I'm borrowing from uh, the Defense Department, really means a lot more than just defense circles. It really means uh, the economic uh, situation, the environmental situation we're living in, political and so on. Just turn on the news and you see that uh, we are already deep into this VUCA world. And so we're going to be discussing how much technology is impacting all of this, what are the consequences on machine creativity, and really what should students learn in this century. So first and foremost, technology. Um, I spent two decades in technology, first in semiconductors and then in systems, most recently at Cisco, before uh, getting into leaving Cisco and uh, getting full-time into education policy. Because I know what technology can do, I thought it was an important thing to discuss very visibly with educators. First of all, I want to remind you that technology isn't necessarily digital. It is mostly digital. But there are also transportation technologies that have a huge impact. For instance, the container. Simply standardizing on container size has dropped shipping costs significantly, which has allowed for goods to be manufactured all around the world and shipped at a reasonable price. And we also have, of course, air transportation. And you might think, well, how, how does this exactly impact uh, jobs and employability? Well. If you, you may not be able to necessarily offshore a surgeon the same way you can offshore manufacturing, but you can offshore the patient. And there's something growing called medical tourism, where you can elect to have medical procedures at a much lower cost in other countries besides the United States. As you can see, there's a, a factor of 7 to 10 at times, if not more. So. That is one example of non-digital technology helping offshoring of jobs by offshoring the patient, not necessarily the surgeon. But that's just the beginning. Let's look at a lot more. If you do this two-by-two two matrix of what is routine versus non-routine skills and what is delivered personally versus impersonally, you can plot all of the, you know, here a few number of um, occupations and show that on the left side, there are plenty of occupations that are already in danger of offshoring, if not already offshored. So bookkeeping, typing, legal discovery, security video monitoring, uh, that's all been offshored already. And even radiology can be offshored by sending high-resolution pictures to, say, India for interpretation overnight. And pathology will be next. We'll snap high-resolution pictures. And for routine pathology slideware, that can also be offshored with interpretation elsewhere outside of um, uh, developed countries. Robots, for instance, in Korean prisons, I mean South Korea, not North Korea, uh, robots are being tested as wardens so that you really bring in the person um, only if truly necessary. And on the right side, which normally you'd think as safe because it is personally delivered, so it requires an interaction with people, and it ranges from routine to non-routine, you find that there are also technologies starting to impact all of this, um, driving or even surgery. So let's go into the details of that. 
autonomous vehicles. Uh, we've passed the threshold. Uh, Google cars having passed over 200, actually 300,000 miles by now, with only one minor accident. And uh, of course, I will, um, I will uh, challenge you to find a taxi driver that has this kind of safety record. Then, double whammy on the poor pathologist. Um, not only can that slideware be offshore, it can also be automated with optical recognition uh, that, would, that is actually more accurate than humans. And this is not new. This has been happening pretty much since the dawn of humankind, right? Uh, the oxen replaced by harvesters and the horses with the automobiles and lab mice would love, would, things they're dying to be replaced by essays. For humans, we've had the printing press, we've had washing machines. In very recent times, we've seen barcode scanners emerge everywhere. And you're probably familiar with IBM's Watson, which is a new threshold in artificial intelligence that has allowed a computer now to beat humans at jeopardy. So as you recall, Big Blue had already beaten uh, Gary Kasparov, the world chess champion, at chess. And well, the people eventually said, well, yeah, but that's only chess. Uh, it's uh, a finite game with predictable rules. What if it was semantic understanding? Good luck with that. Well, IBM has done it with Watson. And that's a new threshold that people, um, most people are uh, unaware of, and particularly the impact of it. Uh, healthcare, finance, services, IBM is exploring how to use that in augmenting decision-making abilities of doctors and finance people and so on. It is true that technology is uh, uh, accelerating. You're familiar with Moore's law for semiconductors, where the density and therefore typically the speed doubles every 18 months. And that has gone pretty much unabated by all sorts of various tricks in recent times. And we have a hard time truly fathoming what geometric progressions actually do. I was lucky to be working on early versions of GSM at the early part of my career, GSM being the global system for mobile communication that most of, actually, the entire planet now uses. And I've seen how technology has gone from giving us phones that were big and bulky, uh, at best fit in your hand, to the marvels we have nowadays with the various Android and iPhone uh, implementations. And fast forward 20 years, it is even more unfathomable at that geometric progression rate. On top of that, we have storage that is doubling every 12 months, and optical fiber doubling every nine months. And the impact of all of this is enormous. Obviously, with optical fiber, you can ship bigger and bigger files farther and farther away, faster and faster. And in terms of storage, the progression in storage means that we can come to a $400 price point for 40 terabytes in your iPhone or Android device by 2015, 40 terabytes. Uh, that's enough space for my music and yours. And 40 exabytes by 2025, which means you can literally record your entire life from birth onwards and have enough storage for it. And here's the clincher. It is already possible to do that in the cloud at an affordable price point. So the cloud is one of those um, disruptions, this accelerant of the already very, very fast geometric progression. And then there's 3D printing uh, with the ability to, nowadays, at a $1,000 price point, to print a blue bunny in resin. But GE, for instance, is experimenting with printing titanium parts, which you see at the bottom left. Well, with titan you know, titanium is extremely, extremely expensive to manufacture. And so um, building the uh, parts from the ground up saves a lot on waste uh, of titanium. And then uh, you can see also uh, uh, prosthesis, where you could come up with all sorts of permutations until you find the perfect one for you, completely tailor-made. And then there's, there's organist exper experimentation in growing organs, such as livers and kidneys, 
and here you see an ear. So whether it's for uh, functional or reconstructive purposes, um, there's even an experiment now on growing muscle. So you can literally grow your own steak. Yeah, seriously. And then, of course, there's the Internet of Things. When things get connected to the Internet, you know, all sorts of devices uh, become connected. And who knows what that will do? You know, your, your fridge will talk back to you and tell you that, really, sure, you shouldn't be eating this. You know, put it back. <laughs> and so there are plenty of things that are being connected. And we, will, we don't know exactly what this is going to mean. And then there are robots. Right, so robots that can do all sorts of tasks. Um, I don't have the latitude to pass uh, video easily through this system, but there are videos on YouTube and elsewhere where you can see amazing advances in speed that are far ahead of what humans can do, whether it's dribbling or catching objects or throwing objects um, or, or even twirling batons is just phenomenal. And that's macro robots. Then there are also micro robots at the at the micro dimension, or nano even dimension, actually not quite nano yet, but at the micro dimension of semiconductors so that you could eventually have tiny, tiny ants or little robots going into your, um, into your uh, arteries and scraping the plaque and so on. It seems like science fiction of course, when I say this, but a lot of the innovations that we are seeing now would have seemed like, seemed like science fiction a mere 10 years ago. And the impact, of course, on jobs and employability is huge. Uh, Foxconn here is threatening to uh, replace even incredibly cheap and docile and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, working under terrible conditions, humans, with robots. And so even there, the lowest cost is not low enough compared to what a robot could do. And so I'll let you savor the irony of this uh, little cartoon. So, and that's of course not counting other technologies like augmented reality. Right now with goggles and so on, you, you would have that capability on your glasses or on a little uh, headband, which will let you know various information about how great a restaurant is here in Lugano, for instance, um, what's the rating of the restaurant, how far are you, how do you get there, etc., etc. But it also could, could have sinister applications, like uh, nasty tagging, right? You could, someone could have graffitied the restaurant in the digital domain or for that matter, graffiti you. So there will be the emergence of, um, uh, in a sense, personal uh, spam protection. So, and oh, by the way, um, I, the reason I'm showing the little contact lens on the left is because the University of Washington is already working on that contact lens so you can, you can get rid of even the headband you see in the, the, the goggle picture. So you'll have that contact lens and uh, be able to uh, be augmented uh, from a, a surfing standpoint. So imagine for a second that you have all this capability, right? Uh, you have Google Translate or equivalent and helps you translate from one language to another. And you can see the text and read it back. But really, why bother even with the text portion? You could very easily imagine a scenario in 10 years where you are speaking on that smartphone of yours and your uh, respondent on the other side hears you in Hindi or Hungarian. This effort you see here is trying to do speech-to-speech -speech translation for 95% of the world population. Okay, so perhaps Basque will not be represented anytime soon, but how about everything else? And if that is the case, will we need to learn a foreign language? But actually, the real question, which we'll debate later on in the call, is how, what kind of foreign language acquisition will you need at that point? Clearly not uh, pedestrian capability, but really upscale capability. And then there's virtual reality. You probably are familiar with uh, Second Life, but it's still a very, very geeky interface. At some point, um, someone will make it uh, Apple-esque 
and uh, you know the application will fly once. No pun intended in this case. Once we have real uh, uh, a really good GUI. And then there's, of course, the biotech side, an improvement of a million in 10 years in genome mapping and sequencing. So it took, it would take today five minutes to do what it would take a year to do only a decade ago, five minutes. And then there's nanomaterials, you know, the ability to construct devices from the ground up, either self-assembled or uh, assembled through um, robotic tips and so on. And then, of course, there's the augmented human side, right? Um, the advances in neuroscience and so on, and perhaps our fear of being left behind by our own devices, which will make us want to catch up. And right now, um, in all countries, caffeine is an accepted, socially accepted stimulant. But what if we needed more? Would we start taking you know, uh, more potent stimulants to keep up? Would there be such, such a competitive pressure between us and other humans or us and machines? And the most unfathomable of it all is how these things all interplay together, right? You know, all the various, uh, the combinatorial explosion of possibilities, meaning would you have guessed just 10 years ago that out of your cell phone you'd be getting a coupon when you walk next to your favorite coffee shop so that you can get a discount on that coffee. That is amazing, and it's all because of this combinatorics of capabilities. So I love this quote by William Gibson. The future is already here. It's not even the distributed. Just look around you. There are plenty of amazing uh, discoveries and, and technology implementations that we are witnessing, but not fully fathoming the extent of the disruptions they're going to cause. So let's take a look now at machine creativity in that context. Well, you can find on the internet examples of music played like Bach, like Beethoven, like uh, Mahler, like Scott Joplin, that are so good that the experts get fooled, absolutely fooled. And they get angry because this is one area where we thought, well, you know, when it comes to creativity, only humans can do that. Well, you know, um, the same way that your music teacher can play you something on the piano like Bach, on the tune of Bach, well, um, if you decompose the music in 400 different parameters like Pandora does, you can actually reproduce something that sounds like Bach or Led Zeppelin even. So. It is perfectly doable, and it is happening uh, to have this incremental creativity capability done by machines. And here's an example in drawing, where you see a number of circles of all dimensions you see on the upper left, how little by little, by eliminating some of the circles, uh, you can come up with art that's reasonably looking and actually reasonably creative. And of course, we have a lot of that already going on algorithmically, uh, the battle between computers in computer trading, you know, a, a thousand orders a second trying to fool and trick the other algorithm and battles between algorithms that elude humans. And with two thirds of the volume now being computerized trading with oddities like the flash crash that happened uh, a couple of years ago where uh, one one uh, seller decided to bail out for a, because of a bug, and a number of others followed suit, saying, uh oh, something is happening. If so-and-so is bailing out, something must be wrong, and I'd better bail out too. And it triggers this cascade effect until the system rebounded. Even journalism. Um, if you look at a lot of the uh, you know, low-grade journalism that we see, it's really the, the AP news release that is simply copy-pasted into uh, a journal. Well, that's insufficient journalism, and that can be done quite easily uh, electronically. This person here, Christian Hammond, is saying that eventually they will win the Pulitzer Prize. Remains to be seen, but can we really rule this out with everything I've shown you already? So, 
this is a conversation that we need to have, uh, all of us as educators. If we have ubiquitous search and AI and all these other technologies I talked about, what would we be teaching for? And as I go and talk with audiences around the world, everyone moves up a notch. So rather than talking about you know, the lower grade elements of knowledge, people talk about more modern knowledge, skills, character, and metacognition. And you see some of the answers here, you know, from teaching wisdom and ethics, you know, just because you can do something doesn't mean you have to do something. Uh, fluidity with technology, um, adaptability, resilience, basic character traits, curiosity, etc. And things that so far machines don't do particularly well, which is synthesizing and creating, but at a higher level, right? Radical innovation, not incremental innovation. And I will highlight again synthesizing because that's a, an underappreciated uh, capability. Uh, everyone talks about analyzing. That's great. But it really should be analyzing, synthesizing, and creating. In a sense, uh, the merger of Bloom's taxonomy with Anderson's taxonomy, his disciple, it's really not one or the other. It's this triad of analyze, synthesize, create. So. In that context, you understand now why um, I've started this center uh, to rethink what should students learn from the ground up. There's so much to do that is uh, simply not addressed by uh, traditional systems. And this is to help formal education systems. This is not to do something on the side, augmentative or whatever. This is really to rethink standards on a global basis. And so far, we have brought together all of these global players. So um, international organizations, uh, the OECD was, one, was the, the, f the first founding member, but also now UNESCO and the World Bank, a number of top-notch PISA jurisdictions, you know, people who, uh, jurisdictions that rank the highest in international scoring uh, done by the OECD, like Finland and Korea and Canada, Singapore, Massachusetts, and New South Wales. A number of academic institutions like Harvard, MIT, and Olin, and Stanford. This is funded so far by the Moser Foundation in Switzerland, the Gates Foundation, the Hewlett Foundation, McGraw-Hill, Nellie May, and a number of corporations are also participating because they make technology that is very relevant to all of this um, search, as in the case of Google, Microsoft, and Wolfram, uh, or AI. Uh, so that's very relevant to them. And we are looking at these four dimensions. Uh, so knowledge, what was, what's traditional knowledge versus what's modern knowledge, skill, as in communication, creativity, collaboration, and so on, character, uh, both uh, performance character and um, moral character, and lastly, metacognition. So learning how to learn, interdisciplinarity, and so on. We have students that are begging for relevance. Uh, please, Ms. Sweeney, may I ask where you're going with all this, you know, looking at arithmetic on a board? We are all wired to pay attention when something is relevant to us. And so we are, students are disengaging often because they don't see the relevance of what they're studying to the world around them. They're far more aware. And here I've plotted the various branches of mathematics versus a number of, uh, of uh, occupation types, from anthropology to sociology. And if you look at the various types of um, mathematics disciplines, you realize that after numbers and operations, it is statistics and probabilities that's most widely used. And yet, you certainly don't see that reflected in math standards or the world over nor do you find applied math, like complex systems, or discrete math, like graphs and computational mathematics taught. You find the traditional you know, algebra and calculus and geometry and, and arithmetic and some statistics and probabilities. And so I ask you the question, what matters to most people around the world in terms of mathematics? The understanding of the world, quantitative literacy, is about 
being able to understand statistics in your newspaper and understand how the world operates. You know, what is nonlinearity when it comes to global warming, et cetera, et cetera. It is not linear algebra. Here in this study done by the OECD asking employers what types of mathematics they would want that are not being taught, guess what? They come back with different types of mathematics, knowledge related like complex systems and stats and discrete math, but also skills like collaboration and communication. Not, not surprising. If you even looked at history, there are elements of history that are far more rich and dense and important than others. So for instance, democracy versus autocracy, philosophers and scientists, leadership of Alexander the Great, those are all major um, elements of high cognitive density that need to be paid attention a lot more because they've had a lot more impact on today's world than you know, various contextual things like wars and so on. And so it would be to teach a deep understanding of history rather than just a superficial, uh, the superficial aspects of them. So the question is, what do we remove? What shall we remove to make space for all of these new things that should be taught? It's going to require a deep re-examination of every single discipline and their branches and the topics and so on and be somewhat merciless. If you rebuild something from the ground up, you will question everything. It's a bit like uh, the nano car built by Tata. You know, it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't have a bumper, it doesn't have a, uh, a side mirror. These are the questions you do ask yourself if you rebuild something from the ground up. You cannot take something big and deconstruct it down. It doesn't work. And so, what are all the other topics that could be brought in? Uh, understanding other humans, like uh, psychology and sociology, anthropology. Understanding your finances. Uh, the need for entrepreneurship coupled with innovation. Uh, robotics, programming, uh, linguistics rather than languages. Uh, perhaps mythology and philosophy, ethics, journalism. And you see, even at the bottom, I have very, very tangible things like woodworking and gardening because I am concerned that we're creating a generation of students that's going too fast, too far in abstraction and with virtual reality we'll start losing contact with what is real versus what's virtual. And so between augmented and virtual reality we're going to have to pay real attention to understand and be really self-aware of what is, uh, what, what is atoms and what is bits. So uh, in terms of skills, uh, surveys that were done years ago uh, and all around the world since have shown that employers want not just knowledge but also skills such as critical thinking and communication and so on. Uh, that's, uh, that is part of course of what I've described in my book 21st Century Skills. And I'm summarizing it for your sake. Creativity, innovation, critical thinking, communication, collaboration, the four C's plus of course information, media and technology skills. So with that, time to get into character. So character matters all the more, of course, in situations where we're all endangering ourselves. Uh, Christian de Duve here, uh, Nobel Prize in Medicine, saying that we have evolved traits that will lead to our own extinction. So we have to learn how to overcome them. And what, what are those character traits we need to learn? Well, they fall into two broad categories, performance, you know, how do you, you excel in school and the workplace and your other experiences, meaning this list of, of items here, adaptability, resilience, curiosity, leadership, etc. But also moral character. Uh, clearly, uh, we've seen what happened with corrupt financial systems and we're seeing what's happening with um, a, a beggar that uh, thy neighbor, neighbor uh, policy when it comes to environmental degradation and global warming and so issues of ethics and justice and respect and so on and awareness uh, are looming large and it's no longer acceptable to say well that's taught by parents or by society you know schools need to get into the action as well and and really uh, lead that charge and to conclude and leave 
time and space for questions, um, I'll bring you back to ancient wisdom that has been um, understood for a long time, simply not uh, acted upon. So Confucius, with the importance of doing to understanding, it's not just a question of knowing, but also doing. Uh, Socrates, with the value of inspiration of an education. And Michel de Montaigne, with the importance of shaping a mind rather than simply filling a head. And so with that, I thank you. I encourage you to go and look at what we're doing at the Center for Curriculum Redesign. And if you are a teacher, and most of you are, uh, please give us your opinions. You see the, the link here uh, that's also part of the invite that Steve had sent around. We value your opinion. We are asking teachers all over the world what they are thinking. What should students learn? And gather all these answers to see what novel ideas you might have and also what, um, how far some teachers might be from understanding the importance of everything I've described in this presentation and how much of a, of a job we need to still do on, on that topic. Do you want to take questions? And that's it. Yes, absolutely. I'd be delighted to take questions. So if you have a question for Charles, you can put it in the chat, or you can raise your virtual hand. Uh, that's the third icon over in that participant window, which is the hand icon, and we'll try and give you the microphone. So let's see. We have Die Laufenberg uh, saying that it's about uh, effective workers. It is more about good citizens. OK. This is not an or proposition. And um, really, uh, if, if I had the time to go through my entire four-hour seminar, you would see that I stress enormously the importance of doing both. But it's not one or the other. And I'm sick of hearing it's only about society or it's only about workers. Like many things in education, it should be an and proposition, and not an or proposition. So it is absolutely the responsibility of education systems to make sure that kids are employable when they graduate. The same way it's their responsibility to make sure that they're good citizens. Um, so uh, going to the next question, um, let's see, uh, Peggy George, how do we prepare for all these changes? Ha. Yes, well, uh, that's exactly what I'm struggling with, and that's why I'm trying to redesign the standards. You see, uh, when my book came out, uh, I started working with a number of jurisdictions, but quickly realized that when, when we start talking about creativity and communication, collaboration, and so on, in the context of traditional uh, standards, all these jurisdictions were simply peppering the standards with the right buzzwords. But to allow you, teachers, enough time to work deeply on projects and practices and practice creativity and communication and so on, as you are teaching knowledge and content, we needed to really re-examine uh, what mattered so that we free up time and space for you guys. And that's exactly what we're doing. So from the bottom up, you can do a certain amount of things, but that only can go so far as long as we don't free you up from uh, the standards that are imposed and also the type of assessments that are being executed. So by working on both, we'll be able to come up with a completely new uh, deal for what you, you guys can do. You are doing fantastically well delivering what the traditional system has been asking you to do. Well, we're saying the traditional system should be asking something different now. That's exactly what, what, where we're going. Charles, I've been tracking the question. Do you want me to ask them in the order? Okay. Yes, please. Uh, <laughs> Diana wanted to know, what kind of buy-in are you seeing from policymakers? Ah. Um, this effort uh, has only started. As you can see, there are seven key leading jurisdictions that are involved because they get it. And the reason why I chose these seven jurisdictions is because they are already on the, at the top of the heap and they're wondering, well, what comes next? They have the same dynamics, the same fears of everybody else. Um, you know, uh, Finland is concerned because Nokia is not doing well at all. And they are seeing jobs disappear there. So everyone is looking for the next phase of their education growth. And those jurisdictions that have done really well by traditional standards are realizing, OK, but it's not just about that anymore. It's about a lot more. So how do we get there? 
So these jurisdictions know, uh, and they're looking at changing. Now, for the others, all the others, well, you always have to come up with a few early adopters who can show the example, because people want to see something tangible. Uh, not everyone has the bandwidth or the latitude to work with my center on thinking things from the ground up. They want to just you know, inherit that once it is done by others. And we certainly welcome and applaud that. OK, I'm <laughs> there are a lot of questions coming in. Norton wants to know, based on your initial findings, what do we eliminate? Yeah. Um, I will know for mathematics in about a year. Uh, we are um, going to be meeting in Stockholm in April, and then uh, in the Northeast uh, in June and July with experts, but with all, also with practitioners, meaning with users of mathematics. And so we will be able to ascertain what people actually use in daily life. Uh, it turns out, of course, that most of us use a sixth grade level of mathematics in our normal lives. So if that's the case, how do we get other branches to be taught so we, that may have a better chance of being used, like the ones I was describing? And um, are there things that should simply be, should, should be pushed up into higher ed? Perhaps linear algebra would be one of my favorite. Uh, could we be removing trigonometry or doing a lot less trigonometry and a lot more statistics and probabilities? So for mathematics, we will know uh, in a year. For the other subjects that will come in the following two, three years, this is just starting now and has gathered momentum and funding. So you know, I've, I've kind of challenged you on this before. I mean, if we look at sort of the history of education, mm -hmm. especially significant moments like the Committee of Ten, um, the attempt to determine this at uh, a certain level is sort of a guaranteed to mean that at some point in time, what would the decisions that are made now are not going to be necessarily true in 10 years or 20 years. And my question would be, uh, how important is the process here in terms of who's making these decisions? If the committee, if the Center for Curriculum Redesign and the organizations that participate make these decisions, is it, don't you run the risk that this actually needs to be much more of a a democratic or grassroots process? Fantastic question. Um, OK. Uh, there are several tiers of answer. First of all, uh, you're right. The process matters. And in that process, um, in that process, so we have, uh, we are bringing together, as I was saying earlier, experts, but also users of the various disciplines. So that is one novelty. Uh, typically, the users are vaguely consulted at the beginning of the process, but they don't participate into all the debates. And so it's eventually driven by experts, well, in the case of mathematics, for example, research mathematicians, who don't really have a good grasp on, on how mathematics are used in real life by most people. So that is one novelty of the, about the, the process. Now, from a broad perspective, it is very tempting to say, well, you know, shouldn't we be all democratically bottom-up voting on what matters? That is seductive. And there's, of course, a lot about crowdsourcing. And this survey is attempting at doing some of that. But it has to be done also top-down. Meaning, if you think of Linux as, a, as an example of a, of a very successful software development, it, the architecture of something that complex isn't done by crowdsourcing. That architecture is done by a select number of really cognizant people who are working really diligently on a continuous basis. Once you have that architecture, then you can crowdsource the muscles and, and the skin and so on. But you have to have the skeleton done by uh, a, a very cogent, smaller group of people. That's what we're doing. So taking the best of both worlds, the best of top-down and bottom-up. I really appreciate that answer. Um, I, I think it's intriguing to me well, when you. I think of participation at lower community levels. I'm thinking less of crowdsourcing and more of the value of actually participating, meaning like democracy okay. yeah. and the degree to which. So the next question yeah. that came up was, how do we raise awareness for parents and community? And maybe that kind of ties in. Yeah. 
It does tie in. Actually, there was a third aspect, a third facet I wanted to answer you about, which does tie in, which is uh, local freedom to add and delete. So what we're doing is coming up with, believe it or not, with, in spite of everything I've said, we're going to come up with only 60 to 70 percent of a child's time. Okay, now that ratio will increase towards high school and decrease towards lower grades, but we want to give a, a, a large minority proportion of local decision making by the school, by the community, by the students, so by the teacher, so that people can adapt to local conditions. We don't max out all the time available with a prescribed top-down thing. Right, so we will reserve a significant portion. That's going to be a challenge, and that means that what we're going to remove is going to have to be incredibly, uh, an incredibly tough conversation. Because even when you ask the most successful systems, what have you removed in the past 50 years, they all look away and say, "Well, really, nothing." That's why you have kids in Singapore and Korea staying up until midnight. And that's just not tenable. There's no time to teach character and um, creativity when you're up until midnight cramming. So now when it comes to parents' involvement, that is going to be so difficult because most parents do not understand what I've just shown you, do not understand the, the breadth of um, jobs destruction that is taking place. And um, you know there are some authors out there trying to talk about it, but um, by and large, it gets either overhyped or underappreciated. You know, unfortunately, it's, it's a world that's out of balance. You get press only if you overhype things, so you can get attention. I'm trying to present something sober and realistic about how these things are happening, but at the same time, urge education systems to adapt because if we don't, we are only prolonging the industrial, um, the industrial revolution situation of seeing a lot of people. Uh, thrown out of their jobs by machines, like you know steam engines did in the 1800s. We're seeing the same repeating itself now, thanks to mostly digital technology. So, parents is going to be one of the priorities at some point when we have something to show. But I'm already making presentations in a select number of um, high potency schools to start at least the message. My book talks about some of that as well. Uh, the book is titled 21st Century Skills. And uh, it, it has been talking about that, but you know, even in the, four, in the past four years that it's been out, I've been shocked myself, even as a technologist, about the depth and breadth of changes that are occurring. We have lots of questions, so I'm just going to keep going through them. Uh, Douglas said, one of the critical sure. issues I see is learning interventions are not occurring early enough to change student attitudes and to encourage metacognition, which would enable a student to be more intrinsically motivated. What can be done? Yeah. One of the, actually, one of the key reasons why metacognition is, uh, is identified as a separate dimension is that by highlighting something, you focus on it, right? And so as we go through the design of the, the new standards, we will make sure that the practices really reflect this uh, attention to interdisciplinarity and learning how to learn and so on. I cannot tell you yet how this will be accomplished. It's very early in the process. But by highlighting it, we'll pay attention to it and we'll make sure that it happens from the earliest grades onward. Fred wants to know, with the Common Core initiative, the current wave that has policy and money pushing, how likely are changes this big to take hold? Well, uh, the reason why the Gates Foundation has funded this is that because they consider that my efforts, in mathematics in particular, are about the future of Common Core. So they would inform the future of Common Core. And so this is not at all in contradiction with Common Core. It's just a question of evolving uh, faster. Uh, Ivor wanted to know if you were familiar with Ron Walk's material and his uh, belief that you needed an alternative parallel school strategy in order to initiate change. Do you know that, and would you agree? Um, I do not know of his work. And if, if that person could please email me, uh, I'd appreciate it. It's uh, charlesfadel at gmail.com. 
uh, now as to whether parallel structures are needed. Uh, who knows? Uh, it's a it's a really big, complicated debate. Um, I I stay away from the how. Um, I have my hands full with the what, as you can see. Uh, these are things related to the how, and uh, that's better left to every system. Remember, there are plenty of systems that are doing quite well uh, with uh, with schools. So the fact that some countries are doing poorly uh, doesn't mean that uh, it's a universal problem. Second even in countries that are doing so-called poorly, it's a broad dispersion of results. Say, take for the United States, for instance, schools at the top 30% of the distribution are doing actually extremely well, even by global standards. Right, so it's really the left side of the distribution that's dragging down the average. So again, you know, this may be something that is important to do for um, one side or one part of the distribution. Think of it in terms of market segmentation, but not necessarily for everybody. Eva wanted to know, what is your advice for teacher education programs to change to meet the curriculum redesign? Well, uh, teacher ed is really, again, about the how. So, uh, so they will have to, to adapt to better pedagogical practices that actually embed practices, you know, the same way that um, doctors and businessmen and lawyers uh, are more and more starting with practices directly at, when they reach college. This is what should be done, you know, very, you start immediately working with schools and you learn the theory at the same time. Uh, but that's just one aspect against the how aspect, the what aspect, if you want to be a math teacher, for instance, just knowing traditional mathematics is no longer going to be sufficient. You're going to need to learn uh, other types of mathematics that are typically not taught universally, like, as I was saying, complex systems or stats or whatever. So it, there, there is a how, obviously, but there's also a lot of what that's going to need to be changed. Okay. Um, Kathy is concerned that this focuses all on mental job skills and not on physical skills or uh, issues related to use of the body. Oh, interesting. Um, it's a fair question. Um, if you go through the survey, you will find that there are a lot of elements that relates to kinesthetic aspects, you know, um, dancing, the arts, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so we're not, uh, we're not advocating in any way that this is only about uh, college entrance or traditional professions or whatever. Um, here, in the context of a very short presentation, uh, that's basically the, the, the slant I've given. But uh, if you had the, the latitude to hear the entire four-hour seminar, you'd see there are a lot of things I bring up. For instance, the importance of, um, of uh, career readiness, not just college readiness. So per the Pathways to Prosperity report that uh, Bob Schwartz at Harvard has produced. Um, the importance of STEM and humanities, not STEM or humanities. You know, again, one of those false dichotomies that everybody latches onto. Um, et cetera, et cetera. So it's unfortunate, but that's, that's uh, an artifact of the amount of time we have. Fred wants to know if you're supporting or um, are you maligning or strengthening a liberal arts education? Ah, well, I think I just answered that uh, in an indirect way, uh, saying that uh, it should be a balance, a better balance between the two. In other words, we don't want liberal arts to be what it has become, meaning the refuge of those who don't want to do any STEM work, you know, as in science, technology, engineering, or math, right? But that's what it has become. If you don't want to do math much, then you go into liberal arts. Well, it shouldn't be that way. The, the old way of looking at liberal arts was a very, very broad and comprehensive view of education. And I personally am in huge favor of that sort of broad capability, because if you think of a world becoming more volatile and uncertain, well, what is a hedge against uncertainty? Well, one of the hedges is versatility. Well, versatility spells liberal arts, right? The ability to really go broad and then later on the master's and PhD or through your career or whatever, develop expertises and not just one. 
So it's this N-shaped model where you're broad and then you go deep and you create more depth with new topics one at a time over your career. Larry asked a couple of questions about teachers, but Larry, I think that your questions have been answered. If not, please feel free to, to ping me back. Um, Carla wants to know, how do you think these fast innovations in tech will affect the mass brick and mortar system and the more individual home education? Home individual education. What? Home education. Um, I'm not, again, it's a question of, uh, of having a balanced view. I'm definitely not saying that you're going to uh, put a, an eight-year-old uh, in front of Khan Academy and have them decide what they're going to learn and how and while you're at work. I mean, come on. Uh, that model has limits, too. So, but clearly one of the boons out of technology will be the ability to personalize uh, to a given student's um, uh, content. Uh, so if, for example, uh, Jane has already mastered a certain chapter in mathematics, well, Jane can either go to the next one or Jane can do something adjacent uh, or Jane can work on skills and character, not necessarily just on content, et cetera, et cetera. So the ability to personalize education is going to free us from some of those debates, not all. Uh, we will need certain guidance about, well, what really matters, right? Uh, everybody, any parent can decide, you know what, I don't care about the standards. I'm going to teach them what I think matters. That's always a freedom. But it would be nice to have a number of people who are experts, who have looked at all the various future scenarios, and to the best of their abilities, even if it is a 50% success rate, 5-0, come up with what they think is appropriate. And with an eye towards the flexibility we just discussed per your question, Steve, earlier on. Um, Ian wants to know, do we have disciplines simply as a result of the system we've had historically? And if so, should we, ought we to think in a different way if we're contemplating possible futures? Yeah, thank you. Um, again, this is one of the things I don't have, didn't have time to get into, but um, we are considering something called integrated disciplines. In other words, are there disciplines that, by the virtue of what they are, are naturally interdisciplinary and multifaceted? Robotics and journalism come to mind, right? So, so you think, well, journalism, who needs journalism in this age of internet and no, no newspapers, you know, newspapers dying? Well, no, you need the ability to think critically, to understand statistics, to write well, to collaborate with others, and on and on. You can do a lot of these things th through these integrated disciplines. The other one, robotics. Well, right, robotics from an engineering standpoint, that's, of course, electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, computer programming, optoelectronics, uh, mechanical engineering, physics, and math, of course, and oh, by the way, communication, collaboration, and critical thinking, and creativity, and oh, by the way, grit and persistence, and sweating it out, and, you know, making your robot work even till the last second, and on and on and on. So these integrative disciplines, uh, might be one of the things we're going to push for, particularly at the high school level. It could be synthetic biology. It could be all sorts of things. I think this through which, of course, uh, you'd be able to teach a lot of the other more traditional. I ones. think we'll have this be the final question. Uh, it's um, there's a name associated with it, but it says, considering your view of liberal arts and humanities as a parallel to STEM, have you or your center pursued relationships with museums and/or similar culture? institutions. Uh, How interestingly, are the one of the logos, one of the working within the systems. Go ahead. Um, one of the logos on uh, on the page with full of logos is the New York Hall of Science NYSI, and that is a science museum in um, in Queens, in New York. Uh, they are part of this. Uh, we fully understand and value the importance of informal education as part of all of this. And uh, we want to see that represented. So, and, but also think about it this way. There are plenty of offers out there that uh, come from the corporate world. Uh, they come from uh, the informal education systems, seminars, all sorts of things that are there because they're responding to a need that the traditional system is not providing. 
So why not figure out what are museums doing, what are, I don't know, leadership trainings doing, and so on, that we can actually bring inside. So rather than having this as being a, a, a concentric uh, overlay uh, circle, why not bring that into the core? So it's very easy, in a sense, to find out what else could we be doing, because it's right there in front of us. It's all those augmentation programs that actually respond to a need, clearly, should be part of the core. Given the volume of questions, I don't think there's any question in my mind that we'll be talking about this more. Charles, thanks so much for being here today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much really for making it possible, so. Steve. And thanks everyone for attending. Rob Glinner tomorrow on schools that change communities. And then next week, uh, lots of fun continuing on. Thanks to Charles. Thanks to all of you for being here. Have a great day or night. Bye now. Take care, everyone.